A few years ago, I finally had a chance to visit the National Museum of African American History and Culture in DC. Tickets are free, but they can sometimes be in short supply. How many of you have, have been there? All right, I see a lot of hands. Great, if you haven't, I encourage you, if you, you know, see if you can find a time in the next few months when you can get down to, to DC. Uh, moving through the underground history galleries up to the highest level of the cultural galleries, for me was this in turns devastating, inspiring, and ultimately uh, ecstatic uh, experience. I was reminded anew in an accessible and experiential way of how much I already know and of how very much I still have to learn about African American history and culture. The biggest tip I would give you is to not miss the contemplative court. Uh, it's somewhat hidden on the concourse level, but it's, it's breathtaking in its power and its simplicity. The number one insight that's really lingered with me most, and the reason I um, brought it up today, is uh, just being reminded of the haunting parallels between the deaths and legacies of Emmett Till and of Trayvon Martin. The lynching of the 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 helped catalyze many people's participation in the civil rights movement. It was the catalyst that finally got a lot of folks to wake up and pay attention. And the murder of the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin played a similar role in helping launch the Black Lives Matter movement. As the activist scholar Dr. Barbara Ransby has written in her book, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, she wrote, if the police murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in the summer of 2014 was the fire that signaled the full-blown emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, then the vigilante murder with impunity of the young Trayvon Martin in uh, Sanford, Florida in February 2012, that was the spark. Trayvon Martin was the spark that later was ignited fully with Michael Brown's death. And these are only a handful of the ways that the, this African American Museum in DC is a powerful reminder, a call, and a challenge to learn more about, about black history and black culture. Standing before you today, I am holding in my heart that today is the actual 67th anniversary of the day on which Emmett Till was murdered. Dr. Scott, if she were with us this morning, planned to preach about Till's whistle. A white woman heard him whistle and perceived him as whistling at her. It seems very clear that was not what he was doing. Uh, her perceptions and choices, though, contributed directly to him being lynched. The second part of Dr. Scott's sermon title was Our Modern Call to Action, pointing to connections between the past and the present. And thinking about that and this contemporary call to action, we're not just supposed to learn about what happened to Emmett Till, but what difference does it make in our lives today? It was reminding me of thinking about how different that is than how I learned history growing up in South Carolina. I don't know how you all learned history, but the way I did, it was really just about memorizing facts for a test. It was just about things that happened back then. There were hardly ever connections made to the present. In contrast, as Dr. Crystal Fleming highlights in her provocative book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, uh, she writes, our nation's emphasis on racial progress, we love to tell that story, and it's an important story, but she said our nation's emphasis on racial progress has obscured racist progress. So even though we've made advances on racial progress, racism has been quickly evolving and, and catching up. 
the evolution of racist ideas and practices alongside anti-racist transformation. Ibram Kendi, of course, has done a, written a lot about this as well. I find this framework quite helpful in learning to notice both positive progress in racial justice, dismantling racism, dismantling white supremacy culture, and the negative adaptations of systemic racism entrenching itself. Let me give you a story of how that has happened in my own life. It is, to be honest, a story, to use Dr. Fleming's words, of learning to be less stupid about race. Almost two decades ago, I attended my first multi-day anti-racism uh, workshop. And one of the parts of that training that I remember most vividly, it's really the one part that I disagreed with. You know, I, I don't actually remember a lot of the stuff I learned. I remember the one thing that I, I didn't get, uh, that I wasn't tracking with. The facilitator said, quote, there has been no progress in working against racism in this country. And I wasn't the only one that was kind of incredulous about that claim. I was like, what, what do you mean? Although I found most of the workshop compelling, I was really resistant to this idea that there had been no progress. I mean, I was just thinking about, like, what about the 13th Amendment? What about Brown versus the Board of Education? What about the Voting Rights Act? What about the Civil Rights Act? And we could go on and on. The facilitator's counterpoint was that despite these instances of apparent progress in racial justice, systemic racism in many ways remained unchanged, and that on balance, you know, due to this deliberate uh, and insidious evolution of racist policies, there really hadn't been, on balance, progress. I didn't really grasp this point, though, uh, uh, in, until uh, quite a few years later when I read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. That wasn't published until 2010, just 12 years ago, so it was quite a few. But that book, I was like, okay, now I get what that person was trying to tell me. It was like the data that I needed. How many of you have read The New Jim Crow? Okay, quite a few of you. We've done reads here. Or how many of you have read uh, Watched 13th, the documentary on Netflix? So if you don't have time to read a book, just spend 90 minutes. Watch that documentary Netflix, on Netflix, 13th. Uh, really powerful. I'll, I'll limit myself to citing only one of Alexander's many profound um, points. She writes, today there are more African-American adults under correctional control, so in prison, in jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. That's just inviting you to see the way that, so we emancipated people that were enslaved, but then we set up this prison industrial complex that essentially is functionally the same thing. And, and that's the example of like uh, anti-racist progress and racist progress coming to balance it. And really coming to see that systemic racism is so much bigger than anyone's individual prejudice. It's just about so much more than what's going on in your heart. It is about these systems and structures and institutions. As I've continued my journey of striving to be less stupid and less fragile around race, though I'm sure I'm still both stupid and fragile uh, as well, uh, and trying to become more curious, more committed to staying at the table to accountably dismantle racism, the most recent aha moment I had was when I heard ta Coates say, and I know many of you have probably read uh, his book as well, he said, what would prove to me that white supremacy is over in this country would be closing the racial wealth gap. I just thought, Wow, that's super interesting, because I'm, I'm sort of a big data nerd. I'm like, wow, you're giving me something specific and measurable that we can track. And it's not just like, do we feel that racism is over? It's like, I don't know, have we closed the racial wealth gap? Like, that's, that's really interesting to me. 
uh, something we can be accountable to. And in researching the racial wealth gap, I discovered a book published by Harvard University Press. It's titled The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. <laughs> it's right there in the title. That's how I found it. Uh, it's by uh, Mirsa Broderand, a law professor at the University of Georgia. Significantly, recent studies in social science show that both blacks and whites tend to severely underestimate the extent of the racial wealth gap. They get it wrong by about 25%. It's like 25% worse than people think it is. Uh, and, and that's where some of this kind of unfounded optimism comes from, of like, oh, we're making this racial progress, and ignorance about the corresponding progress in systemic racism. So what does the data show us about uh, the racial wealth gap? In Baradaran's words, today across every socioeconomic level, blacks have significantly less wealth than whites. Over a third of black families have either negative wealth or no assets at all. The 2008 financial crisis in particular devoured half of the wealth of the black community since African Americans had racistly been disproportionately targeted for subprime loans, proving once again that adage that when Wall Street catches a cold, Harlem gets pneumonia. Zooming out for a more historical perspective, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, the black community owned 0.6% of total wealth in the United States. So at the end of enslavement, 0.6%, less than 1%. What's staggering is that more than 150 years later, that number has barely budged. Um, black Americans still own about 1% of wealth in the United States. This statistic is not new, indeed, in a line often forgotten from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 I Have a Dream speech. He said that America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. It's important to remember the full title for that speech. It wasn't just the March on Washington. It was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Right? It's deeply connected to labor and economic justice. Or to zoom in closer to home, today only 40 miles southeast of here in our nation's capital, we find that whereas nationwide white families hold 13 times the wealth of black families in Washington, D.C., white households are 81 times wealthier than black households. So I've come to take ta Coates's point quite seriously, that the closing of the racial wealth gap would prove to him that white supremacy was actually over in this country. Uh, if you haven't read his uh, essay, A Case for Reparations, it's, it's very much worth reading. You can, you can Google it, find it easily. It's also available in his very important book, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy, which is his reflection on the Obama administration. Now, there's a lot to be said about the history of how the racial wealth gap has been kept in place. We explored this quite a bit in a, a sermon a few years ago uh, uh, based on the book, The Half That Was Never Told, uh, about how, how much profit was made from enslaving people of color, and then that wealth was never paid back. So for now, I will limit myself to noticing one other interesting point from an interview with ta Coates in which he emphasized that as racist as our recent president was, he's actually arguably not as racist as our 17th president, Andrew Johnson. This is to, to damn him with faint praise, but uh, Andrew Johnson assumed the presidency in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. We were actually on a path 
to making racial progress in this country and dismantling white supremacy uh, during the Reconstruction period following the Civil War. But Johnson joined the white Southern backlash and rolled back all the progress that Lincoln had made. He thoroughly undermined the Freedmen Bureau bill. That was the whole 40 acres and a mule. You know, they were actually going to help give land and, and make a systemic uh, difference. Uh, Johnson fought the black rights movement, asserting that America would remain, quote, a white man's government. After 400 years of enslavement in the U.S., literally months after the end of the Civil War, Johnson was already advancing the argument that the Freedmen's Bill was advantaging blacks over whites. That's this, just such this old canard, and that it was time for blacks to, quote, fend for themselves. The more you learn about the history of white supremacy in this country, the more you notice these historical echoes. As the saying goes, history doesn't simply repeat itself, as, as Sabrina was rightly pointing that Santana quote, but it does tend to rhyme. You know, we see the, these rhymes. So today, when I think about Chief Justice John Roberts of the United States Supreme Court saying that, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. We should just stop paying attention to race, according to uh, our Chief Justice. That statement sounds a lot like President Andrew Johnson's position on racial justice, and it's willfully ignorant of what it will really take to build a diverse, beloved community. Uh, that what our UU6 principle calls peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some but genuinely for all. Roberts is operating from a position of white privilege that erases the history of systemic racism that's still very much with us, and that we have somehow magically instituted a level playing field. It's, it's just not so. In contrast, if we look to our first African-American Supreme Court Justice, Thurgood Marshall, who tragically was replaced by uh, Clarence Thomas, if for some of you who remember that, that we went from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas. Uh, Thurgood Marshall famously wrote a dissenting opinion in a 1978 Supreme Court case about affirmative action. He said the legacy and years of slavery and years of second-class citizenship in the wake of emancipation could just not so easily be eliminated. He continued that bringing African Americans into the mainstream of American life should be a, a state interest of the highest order, and that the failure to do so is to ensure that America will remain forever a divided society. He's like, we're either going to get serious about this or we're going to remain divided, and we are deeply polarized today. Forty years later, it is Justice Marshall, not Chief Justice Roberts, whose prediction seems prescient. As our UU 8th principle affirms, if we don't accountably dismantle racism and other systemic oppressions, our tendency is to let them perpetuate ourselves. There tends to be some confusion around, you know, we UUs are really clear that we are not aspirational racists, right? We're not the KKK. We're not trying to get better at being racist. But what we can miss sometimes is that if we're not intentionally, accountably anti-racist, then you tend to just perpetuate these systemic racism. That's what's got to be dismantled. In the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final book titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Question mark. Chaos or Community? Where are we going to go from here? Chaos or community. He said it this way, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for African Americans. This point is related to the insight today that, of course, all lives matter. But given the history of racism in this country, there's a need to be especially clear that black 
lives matter. Or as the saying goes, would you attend a breast cancer fundraiser chanting, all cancers matter, all cancers matter. Of course all cancers matter. This is a breast cancer fundraiser, right? So, you know, it's like if you broke your arm, would you want the doctor to put you in a full body cast because all bones matter? No. Right? Uh, by the way, I should, I should mention that our, our Black Lives Matter sign, it, we've ordered a new one. It, it came down in the wind. It was not stolen or anything. If you missed it, it'll be back up soon. But we also know that we must proceed in the work of racial justice strategically, because there's so many bad faith actors cynically stoking racial resentments for political gain. The truth is that racial justice is not a zero-sum game, and the loss, of privilege, the loss of white privilege is not the same as reverse discrimination. As the saying goes, when you're so accustomed to uh, being advantaged, equality can feel like oppression. When you're just super accustomed to being advantaged, equality can feel like oppression. But it, it isn't. It just can feel that way. We must be clear that the failure to act for racial justice and for a more fair and equitable and integrated society, it just makes things worse for all concerned. Social scientists have demonstrated that excessive inequality and the racial wealth gap, it erodes trust in society, it increases illnesses, it leads to corruption, it increases crime, whereas having a more equitable, and we need to close both wealth gaps, uh, but uh, just in general and specifically the racial wealth gap, and we'll, we will all be better as a society. Langston Hughes wrote about it this way in his 1951 poem, Harlem. He said, what happens to a dream deferred when we just keep putting off anti-racist progress and dismantling racism? What happens to a dream deferred? He said, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Does it fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? or crust and sugar over like sugary sweet, maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? May we be part, not of perpetuating a dream deferred, but of turning dreams into deeds. Together we can build that better world we dream about, and I'm grateful to be on that journey with all of you. This is hard work, what we're talking about doing, but we can do hard things. We can do them together. In that spirit, let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together in your teal hymnal, number 115, I Know I Can.